Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden and Sam Chamberlain. Hello, Food and Faith Podcast listeners. We have such a special guest today. We have Emily Scott, who is a church planter and a Lutheran pastor. She's the founder of St. Lydia's, a dinner church in Brooklyn that sparked a wider dinner church movement in the U.S. Currently, she's planting a new LGBTQ plus rooted congregation called Dreams and Visions in Baltimore. And we're super excited about this. Her book, For All Who Hunger, Searching for Communion in a Shattered World, is out on May 12th from Penguin Random House. Now, that whole bio is exciting, but I will say I am particularly excited because Emily is somebody who has walked us alongside and been a inspiration for me and for so many others in the food and faith movement and the church planting movement. Um, I was remembering, Emily, as I was trying, getting ready for this interview, that I first heard of your work at St. Lydia's in a compilation book that Nadia Boltz-Weber had written a chapter for, and she mentioned your church. I'll have to go find the book. I can't even remember. <laughs> I have no idea what that book is. That's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll find it. I'll, um, it was just a one line. It was like a one line of, and a dinner Whoa. church. And, and I looked it up and you were so generous when I came to New York a couple times pre-garden church uh, with your time and your um, wisdom. And it is just thrilling to see all that has happened at St. Lydia's and in Dreams and Visions. And now you're my book buddy. Like we're book Yay, buddies. Book buddies. <laughs> Hashtag book buddies. <laughs> oh, thank you for being on the pod today. Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. And yes, especially with Anna, there are so many interweaving stories. Um, I remember like a moment when, I don't know why I was in your car in Berkeley, but you were driving me someplace and basically like downloading the, the vision for the garden church as we were driving, I think you were driving me to like a, a train station and we just had this moment of, of like this new reality kind of um, sort of hanging in the air for a minute and being like, oh wow, that's going to happen. So it was that sort of like pre-moment of when an idea has struck, but like nothing has, it's just like the idea hanging. Um, and I remember that so clearly. So, and Sam, I'm super excited to meet you and talk with you. I've been hearing about you forever. Oh, um, so I'm very glad to to be able to connect and talk about food and faith. <laughs> well, one of the uh, one of the side things that I try to bring to the pod is this sort of really Maryland centric uh, <laughs> centric Maryland. focus. So I'm so glad to have claimed you as our own. So welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm still learning a lot about Maryland and um, the geography here and the stories of this place and the soil. All those good Once things. we lift this quarantine, we'll have to have you up to Carroll County. All right, okay. so great. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of a lot to explore in Maryland. And so, well, speaking of counties and geography and all that, um, that's where we often like to begin. Um, and so, we want to ask you, as we often do, what is your geography? Um, the land, food, culture, space, anything that has shaped you and that you consider part of the landscape of your own story. Um, what is some of that geography that has shaped you on your journey? Oh, it's such a good question. Um, I've lived in Baltimore for about two years. And as I was saying, you know, I'm still really learning the geography here and the way that um, this area is really formed by uh, the water that flows out to the to the bay and kind of learning about being in a watershed. 
But I would say that the geography that formed me is still New York City. And um, it's the place where I know the stories the best. It's the place where, um, you know, I know all the streets like the back of my hand and can orient myself in a second. And I think New York is such a fascinating place to be doing church and building relationships because the relationship to the land and to food is so distant. Everything's kind of paved over and um, there is actually an incredible history of agriculture in Brooklyn, right where St. Lydia's um, sits. Uh, but all of that has been really, um, really destroyed, to be honest, by um, a legacy of industry and pollution that's, um, that's devastated that watershed area. So I think, um, you know, my geography is one of living in a real tension around the relationship to nature. And um, I think what that created for me when I lived there, I lived there for about a decade. And um, I was never much of an outdoorsy person before I moved to New York City, but kind of the last half of my time there, I started feeling these really deep urges to get into nature and to be connected and even just to like see trees and experience quiet. Um, New York, there's not a quiet moment there really. And so I remember just yearning for like silence <laughs> and go, actually going to, um, to uh, a park in Brooklyn, kind of thinking like this could be a quiet place and realized I was under an airway path and every five minutes an airplane landed over me going to LaGuardia. Um, or maybe it was JFK, but um, that sense of like longing for nature and longing for connection is I, th I think something that a lot of New Yorkers feel even when they're so distant for it. And I think that's part of what's coming out in New Yorkers' obsession with food. Um, like we're so distant from um, animals and from uh, growing food. So we kind of fetishize it in a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's a lot of what St. Lydia's was about, was kind of reclaiming a relationship to food that felt whole and connected as opposed to kind of fetishized and perfected, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So Emily, could you tell us a bit about St. Lydia's and the frame for what this book is, um, the stories this book is telling? Sure. So St. Lydia's is a dinner church. Um, it was founded in 2008 and um, it came from a, a set of urges that I was feeling myself for a kind of intimate spiritual space. Um, I was new to New York City at the time that St. Lydia's was founded and I kept meeting people around the city, like younger people mostly, who would find out that I worked at a church. At the time I worked at like a big steeple congregation um, running their liturgy program. And people would say like, oh, um, well, that sounds really interesting. Like I've been looking for a church, but I haven't found a place. And I'd kind of ask them about that and say, well, you know, what are you looking for? And often it turned out that they were feeling like the progressive church services that they had access to were too formal, um, like they didn't fit in. Or sometimes it was like, well, everybody there has kids and I don't have kids. So I started to see this gap um, for a spiritual community that was needed in the city, especially among younger adults. And um, I also was noticing around the same time that the experience of coming together around the table, especially in New York City, where um, so few of us even have kitchen tables, much less a dining room table, um, that was a very powerful experience. Cooking and eating together um, was something that people were really, really hungry for. So um, the idea for a dinner church came through that experience and also through a lot of work that I'd done in my training um, with experimenting with, with uh, table liturgies 
So there was quite a bit of that happening at Yale Divinity School when I was there. And I had also studied at St. Gregory of Nyssa, who had a service called Feast of Friends for some time that was um, dinner church, basically. So all those ideas kind of melded together and we created um, a worship service where we gathered around the table. We cooked and um, cooked a big meal together. And then at the beginning of the service, we blessed the bread and shared it with each other as Eucharist. And at the end of the service, after we had eaten together and read scripture, um, we blessed our cup. Uh, so it was a very, yeah, beautiful pattern of gathering around the table for a sacred meal. I think that's such a, such a beautiful story. And one of the things I hear as you're talking is, is sort of a dichotomy or a very different approach to how many of us think about church planning is in so much of the literature that I've read, um, people just assume that we need churches to be planted without identifying reasons why um, churches need to exist in different ways and in different spaces. Um, and as I've, 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 I've read about the book and haven't had a chance to fully digest it yet, one of the things that I noticed um, that gets talked about a lot is this idea of dinner church as the antidote to modern loneliness. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how you, like what that term modern loneliness kind of means to you, how it expresses itself in the people that you pastor and journey with and why dinner church is a unique answer to that need. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a unique answer to New York loneliness too. I think that living in a city with millions of people is by nature lonely making. <laughs> you feel very anonymous and as if no one knows your name. And I think you know, where that goes is like, well, God probably doesn't know my name either. And then you feel just really lost <clears throat> unless you have like a very strong sort of system of support and connection there, which takes a long time to build. So I think one of the, one of the things I was really hoping for with the congregation was to create a space for worship that felt really intimate and where people felt known my name. So having big rows of pews and in a giant, beautiful, you know, cathedral like space, um, there's plenty of beautiful spaces like that in New York and they're lovely, but they don't make you feel known. They make you actually feel smaller, which you already feel. <laughs> so nobody needs any help in that department. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, sometimes that can be a really transcendent feeling, but yeah. um, I was really looking for an experience of, um, of being known. You know, the first thing that happens when you come in the door at St. Lydia's is the greeter invites you to make a name tag um, and to put your name in a little like plastic sheath that's like semi-permanent. So it's kind of like, and your name tag is the same as everybody else's name tag. It's not like you got the stick on one and everyone else has a nice real one. <laughs> that was really important to us that like everybody felt immediately part of the service, like even if they had just walked in the door. Um, so creating community in these ways that are so tangible and physical um, was really important to us. And I think, you know, I think we succeeded. Like it is, it is an antidote. You leave St. Lydia's feeling known um, in a really profound way and hopefully having experienced some sense of God at the table alongside you as well. Now, I, I did not know or appreciate about you um, the amount of training and the focus that you have in liturgy. Um, mm -hmm. And so I want to draw on that for a second. And how did you liturgically think about bringing this idea of being known, um, having a name, having a place, having a seat. Um, how did you practice that liturgically? Mm. Well, I think the first thing to say about liturgy is that <laughs> I stand on so many shoulders. Um, mm. 
especially Donald Schell and Rick Fabian, who I've mentioned, um, who founded St. Gregory of Nyssa. And Anna, Anna is very much formed by St. Gregory's as well. Um, and then my, my teacher in liturgy, Dr. Siobhan Garrigan, um, taught at Yale Divinity School during the time I was there. And I was a chapel minister in the ecumenical chapel for, for three years and then worked there as a staff person. Um, so I came to the founding of St. Lydia's with, you know, I had been planning daily worship in an ecumenical context for, for like four years. <laughs> and you get a lot of like reps in when you do that. Yeah. You're just constantly like churning out like language for prayer, um, figuring out how to move people around in space, like trying new creative things. And so um, I feel really, really grateful for that time of experimentation. It was almost like a, like a laboratory, both there and at St. Gregory's. Um, but I think, you know, what I love to talk about and think about is the way that church planters in particular have an opportunity to read a culture and like listen to that culture and then translate it into the most kind of relevant liturgical practice. And I think, um, you know, what we did at St. Lydia's was very potent in New York City because of that deep need for connection and um, intimacy, but it doesn't sing in the same way in many other contexts or it needs to be like significantly adapted. So St. Lydia's is the last thing from like a, like a save all for the church. <laughs> you know, I think sometimes people are sort of like, oh, maybe this will rescue us, but it's really not. I think what will rescue us is listening to people um, in our neighborhoods and developing liturgies that's, that speak to their hearts and speak to their hungers. Um, and it looks totally different in every context. Um, similar to what you're doing, Sam, you know, like what you're doing is deeply tied to the place where you are, as was um, the garden church. Um, but, you know, the sort of question and trick comes in kind of saying, like, I know this is the set of hungers that are being experienced in this context and community. How does that express itself liturgically and kind of making that <clears throat> creative transition? I think one, so one example from the tables at St. Lydia's is that, um, first of all, we were seated at tables, which meant we were facing one another instead of the back of people's heads. And that in and of itself is a huge reorientation in worship. And then the worship service was peppered with as many ways as possible to, to engage people in interacting with each other one-on-one. -on -one. So there were like, I don't know, 17 different moments in the service where you were engaged with your neighbor. Um, so when you came in, you met someone who helped you make a t name tag. Then you were asked by someone else to help set the table and like you got to meet that person. And then we had a candle lighting and you turned to your neighbor and lit their candle from yours. So there's this other, this moment of human connection there. And then you sat at a table and had conversation with people that sometimes was really wonderful and sometimes super awkward and weird. <laughs> um, and then there was kind of this open time with the sermon and, and poem and prayer. But then at the end, again, you were asked to wash dishes with people um, and then shared the piece at the end. So in a city where like, you know, if you're living on your own, you could go weeks without human touch, honestly. Um, to come to a place where there's so many moments to connect with people in an individual manner, um, that's, I think, an example of like how the hunger of the community showed up in the liturgy. I'm so appreciative of the reminder that this, these particular models of church are not what's going to save the church. Um, I think it's something. <laughs> oh my all gosh! Three of us as church Say it again for the people in the back. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are not saying that there should only be dinner churches, garden churches, farm churches. Um, yeah. And, and we're I also like not a life raft. Like we're not like 
you know, something for everyone to like plow their hopes onto. Yeah. Um, like hope is great. I love that. And support is great. But sometimes it feels like um, we're being asked to like single-handedly rescue the whole enterprise. <laughs> That's yeah. sort of yeah. a lot of pressure. Yes. Yeah. Well, we're trying to all just survive in our little <laughs> church planning world. Um, and I think that that is something that is incredibly important to continue to couple with these stories that there are lessons for the entire church. I do believe that. Like, I believe that there are things that we are learning by doing church in these various contexts that can be hopeful for the broader church, that can enliven, teach, learn, but that it's not about there being one like magic purple pill model. Yeah. It's about like the questions that we're asking and those questions, like what are the hunger? What is the context? How can we be that here? Well, in your book, For All Who Hunger, I was so struck by how you explored the geography of the city. And um, I, I love visiting New York. I loved visiting St. Lydia's a few different times. Um, but it was always that, you know, I was, I was a visitor coming to. And reading your book, I just felt like it was this invitation to dig into the soil or the concrete mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. of the community. I was really struck by your work with, um, with the water and mm-hmm. the, the waterways there. And so you and I both have in common that we just wrote books about churches and places that we are no longer there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to just start off by asking, what did you learn about that place, be it Brooklyn or St. Lydia's, in the writing of it once you were no longer there? Were there things that, that you learned in the process of writing, about the, writing the book mm-hmm. that maybe three years ago you couldn't see in the same way? Mm. Well, to give a little bit of context, Anna's talking about um, a section in the book that relates particular to, particularly to the geography in Gowanus. Um, and the Gowanus Canal is a canal in Brooklyn that did used to be a watershed. Um, and I think probably six years into founding the church, our congregation had finally moved into our own space. And we had like a spot in the world that um, where we were going to live. And it was really clear to me at the time that we were visitors, you know, that we weren't we were very new. <laughs> we weren't long-term re- residents. And around the corner from us was a church called St. Agnes, which was a Catholic church. And we met neighbors who um, their parents and their grandparents had been married there and buried there. So it was just so clear that we were, um, we were just brand new. We were just babies when it came to the um, neighborhood. And one of the things that was really wonderful is that um, living in Brooklyn, there was actually someone who had written a book on my neighborhood <laughs> that was nice. called Gowanus. <laughs> so that's an amazing resource, you know, if you can just go and read a book about the streets that you live on. Um, but reading, you know, I read, it, I read the book as part of a series that we did on our neighborhood at St. Lydia's. And I remember just having this feeling of kind of opening like my eyes kind of opening to the place where I lived, where I used to kind of walk around and just think, you know, not really think much, honestly, just think like these are the streets that I live on. And as I read the book, um, it's called Gowanus, Brooklyn's Curious Canal. Um, My relation, it kind of was like these layers developing in my relationship to the neighborhood. And like, I knew the name of the person who had died in the factory fire and where he lived 
on Hoyt Street in like the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And that sense of like connection to the past and kind of how that brought me to the present moment was so rich. So I think as I wrote the book, um, all of that was sort of, I think it, it wasn't necessarily a matter of learning something new as I wrote, but it was a matter of kind of everything that I had been doing at St. Lydia's kind of rising up to the surface, kind of like cream on milk or something and coalescing in a way so that you can kind of skim off the top, like all this work that you've been doing for years. And then kind of saying like, this is the sense of meaning that I want to communicate to my reader. Um, so yeah, that's what I'd say. It was like a big consolidation yeah. effort. I don't know if you experienced that Anna in your writing. I think that's a beautiful analogy because it's like, you can't write all the stories. It's mm-hmm. such a, <laughs> yeah, like, and there's so many stories and to pick, but to be able to, I like that image of the cream rising to the top and then bringing that together. And I know you, you touched on this a bit more, but I just want to pull, pull on this thread of it more because we are the food and faith podcast. I think it's really, um, it's fascinating to me that your first church was a dinner church. And as you said, it came out of, you know, so many different liturgical experiences um, and others who are working about how to have church around the table. Um, But your current church plant, Dreams and Visions in Baltimore, my understanding is it's not specifically dinner church, which doesn't mean you don't eat together, but there's a whole different model. And so could you dig a little deeper into contrasting those two settings in terms of what did you take with you from your experience at St. Lydia's? And it would have been probably, I think, pretty easy to be like, well, did that dinner church thing. Let me go replicate that somewhere else. Yeah. Um, But I think there's some deep wisdom in that your next church doesn't look the same because it's not in the same context. Yeah, exactly. It looks nothing the same. And um, I mean, here's something that may be disappointing to those of you who really love food, (laughs) which is that I, I think in the beginning at St. Lydia's, I got a lot of questions about like the food itself and like how I felt about the food. (laughs) And and at a certain point I was like, I'm actually not that interested in food. Like I'm interested in um, what happens when people sit together at a table and that eating, I'm, I'm interested in what happens when people eat together. There's other people who do amazing work on food, like Kendall Vanderslice is a great example. Um, and like where food comes from and you, Anna, like where food comes up from and how it feeds us and how it connects us to the earth, like all these amazing, um, metaphors and connections there. Um, it's never been like my road, but I think what I care about the most is community connection and the feeling of, um, the feeling that we've kind of tapped into the divine present among us. And that's been something that's been woven through my life. I actually um, started off as someone who was very interested in music and I was a, trom- I was a pr- performer and played the trombone. And um, the same thing kind of, the same metaphor kind of works there where um, a lot of people are like really nerdy about music and they know every single piece that's ever been written and have recordings of this and that. And I've never been a music nerd. Um, I realized in retrospect, I just love the experience of being connected to people in rehearsal and in performance and that that experience is often transcendent. So that's what I hunt for. Like I'm always on the look for um, always on the lookout for these transcendent moments, um, whether it comes through music, whether it comes around a dinner table, And now I think at Dreams and Visions, you know, we're creating a very particular community of folks who are part of the LGBTQ community, as I am. 
And um, that's a particular set of stories um, for folks, many of whom have suffered incredible trauma from being um, ousted from their faith communities or told that um, God didn't love them as they are and didn't accept them. Um, so it's a very different kind of space that that's being created. And I think it's, um, you know, our name is Dreams and Visions from the prophet Joel. And um, I think the whole space is really oriented around this idea that we can imagine a different um, world than is currently here. And that resonates also particularly in Baltimore, um, which I think is a city in a lot of ways that has kind of lost sight of dreams because things are really bad in Baltimore City. Um, and there's a lot of folks that haven't been given the opportunity to dream or have been told that they don't get to do that um, because uh, of their lot in life. So I think creating that space of dream and hope and imagination is actually a very counterculture kind of revolutionary act. And um, it's a church that has a ton of creativity. We're always kind of making things and having little art projects and writing letters. And um, it's also very much based in storytelling and people's voices being heard. So I, I try and make a lot of space in the liturgy for um, people to speak up and to celebrate what's happened in their lives and um, to hear from one another. Um, no matter how marginalized they may be. And that's super different from St. Lydia's where the, the liturgy was really like, I hesitate to say this, but there were ways in which the liturgy was almost more important than anything else that was happening. Like um, rarely did the, that, that's not totally true, but like the liturgy was kind of at the center. And I think at Dreams, and the tables were at the center and at Dreams and Visions, like people's need to be heard and seen is more like, held at the center with a kind of tender vulnerability, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, it's just like, it's a different container, right? It's a totally different container. It's, yeah. And it's not that there's some core need that's the same for connection to God and connection to one another, but that the context is different. So the container has to be different. And yeah. And I think the transcendent moment at dreams and visions takes place in people who haven't had a voice speaking. Like mm. that's, that's, the moments that have been truly stunning in this sort of year and a half old church plant have been those moments. Oh. Um, as, as I'm listening to the two of you sort of go back and forth, I'm reflecting on the podcast that we did recently, Anna, and the one we're doing now and sort of putting these stories next to one another and thinking about um, just the fact that in this conversation, we have two really skilled cultural exegetes and how that is. Three. Um, well, you know, and, 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 you know, and why I think they're such a unique call in the church in our time to to do better, to do better um, in terms of our cultural exegesis. Um, mm -hmm. And the times, and so I'm, I'm, I'm reflecting as I'm hearing both of you share about, you know, what it is we're trying to do up here, you know, in, in the country um, where food, where nobody needs to be reminded of the importance of food. Um, I mean, there's literally not a, you literally cannot drive to your work without passing, you know, acres and acres of cornfields, which I love and I celebrate. Um, but I also feel that, that, that idea of, you know, folks out here feeling like they haven't had a voice in wider sorts of, in wider 
in wider conversations. Um, and so when all of a sudden there's a bunch of people who are like, oh, we really care about food. We need to have these conversations about food. Folks out here are saying, wait a second, we've, 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 we want to have these conversations. We've been having these conversations. Um, can, can we come and, and be a part of that conversation? And so um, what I hear as, as we all sort of share food as a place, whether it's core to our mission or not, um, Food is one of those ways that we can do some cultural identifying and sort of understand where folks are coming from. But it also can just be the place where we meet to do the work of cultural exegesis and to hear the story. So it can either be the center or it can just be the place where we gather around. Either way, food is going to be really important to helping us exegete the places where we are and to do good work in the place where we are. And to watch that happen um, from the two of you on completely different coasts um, in very different situations. Um, and then Emily, to hear both of your stories about two very different containers, I think is really instructive to why this conversation around food is really important um, and why we wanna be in partnership and conversation with folks who are doing really good work of ex exegeting their communities. That's more of a sermon than a question. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's, um, you know, I think food is one of the primary ways that we share culture. And there's a lot of beautiful images in Anna's book of um, making bread for church or people who have made something to bring to church um, or how the food from the garden gets shared. And I think like, food carries culture and so when we share food with each other across like any boundary of difference like we share a little piece of ourselves with that person um so there's so much opportunity and actually you know at saint lydia's i think there's a way in which i think we could have gone even and maybe they're doing this now but we could have gone even farther with with sharing culture through food often people would make a recipe that was very um important to them or that came from their home or their background and that was always lovely to see like it was like you got a little taste of their yeah. house, <laughs> like where they grew up um, and different sort of like flavor profiles and different ingredients. So that was always wonderful, but um, there's even more work to, to do there. Well, I want to bring us back to your book, For All Who Hunger, and to focus for a minute on the um, subtitle, Searching for Communion in a Shattered World. One of the things that I really appreciated was this was not a hey we're this really cool new church let me tell you how to do cool new things which as we've discussed is not the reason that we plant churches um and i was really struck i just want to read a little um a couple sentences from your chapter empty tombs and I was appreciative of how you're not, didn't shy away from the difficult pieces and seeing the shattered and the willingness to be in the community and to see the community for all of its beauty and all of its pain. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to share this and then I have a, a bit of a follow-up question. So you write, on those good Fridays, it is God, not we, who stitches us back together. And God offers not a bunker that will provide imagined safety, but a road to walk, uncertain and exposed. Grace shows up, not in the ways we try to hold it together, but when we finally let go. Which kind of, I, that I've read this like passage four or five times now, and I kept coming back to it. it really touches me in that there's something about us taking our churches out of the bunkers and our, our theology out of the bunkers 
and ourselves out. And there's something about taking our liturgies, be it to the streets, as you and I both did in our context, to around tables, out on the farm, in the streets of Baltimore. There's something about taking our churches out of what sometimes are very lovely, beautiful, useful containers, but sometimes our bunkers are these, mm -hmm. these boxes that hold us in. And in your book, you give this invitation to be in the community in that way that can see the, see the brokenness, see the places of suffering and injustice, but also to see the strength and the power. And it comes back to this idea of, you know, we see each other in cultural pieces are, are um, raised up in our food and our eating. And you have these stories about working with the arts cooperative and the stories about the, the names, putting up the names of, of black men and women and children who had been killed, putting those in the window and getting to know the parents of people who had, had lost their children. And that by entering into the brokenness, there's something that was, it, in my experience of reading, there's something that was freed from mm -hmm. that bunker. Um, and so here I am not really asking a question, but just <laughs> making some statements. But <laughs> you have more things you could reflect on, on what is really, what you bring out in terms of change in your own heart and your own stories, but also where that, offers an invitation to the church and offers an invitation to all of us in our communities when we are willing to get out get out of our our boxes and go mm. walk and be present to the shattered places in the world yeah thanks thanks for reading that I, <laughs> this is an aside but i was thinking as you were reading there was such a back and forth about the phrasing of that sentence, it, it is God, not we, versus it is God, not us. <laughs> now, every time I hear that sentence, I'm like, should it have been us? <laughs> oh my <laughs> gosh. Very grammatically ambiguous. <laughs> anyway, that's an aside. But um, the, I like, love the, that. the writer's <laughs> brain <laughs> that like can't turn off. Um, the, the chapter that Anna read from is from... Um, a chapter that opens with a description of, of preppers actually, who are like preparing for the end of the world and like find a bunker, like literally a bunker underground to hide in. And the question kind of becomes like, can that be a place of life? Like you're still alive, but are you really living? If you're like living a hundred, you know, a hundred feet under the ground and there's like armed guards outside, which some people are buying properties that are, that are designed for the end of the world. And, um, it, I think it's a question too right now living through COVID of like, what does, we just heard about abundant life in the last, in last week's lectionary passage, but like, what is abundant life um, when we are locked in our homes, you know, <laughs> like how do we access that? And um, how do we engage like fear and feelings of scarcity? Um, all of those are very like bunkery to me kinds of feelings. And I think, um, Anna, it's like, it's easy to draw a false dichotomy between sort of like, we're like hiding in the church or we're like going out into the world. And like, I think for those of us that do more missional work, we're always like encouraging people to be in the world and to meet their neighbor. Um, and I think that the church has a huge call to, to be engaged. 
Um, I also think that it has to be rooted in call. Um, so if, if we're just kind of shouting at people to, um, to be more engaged in their neighborhoods, like that kind of hits people like an assault a little bit. And it, it, um, I think sometimes people can feel like they're being sort of, um, pressed to do something that doesn't feel accessible to them, (laughs) if that makes sense. Um, and so a lot of the book is about call as well. And like identifying your sense of that sort of scary, unfamiliar thing that God is calling you to do that like Jonah, you know, you want to run away from it, but you know, you're being called to it. And so I think there's like this balance of like fear and desire that I really hope that Christian communities can tap into. I think often in our congregations, we just don't talk about either. We don't talk about fear or desire and we just um, kind of keep doing what we've been doing every Sunday. Like we're sort of trains on a track, but God is disruptive and like God um, comes into our lives and basically turns everything upside down. (laughs) So I do see those signs of disruption and of um, uncertainty and confusion as signs of life, absolutely, and signs that that God is up to something. Um, you know, for me, my call was very much to learn the stories of my neighborhood and to be in relationship with neighbors, um, and it was extremely disrupting for me as a white person who's lived with um, so much privilege and comfort in my life. Um, but looking looking back at the trajectory I feel like I was dead before and now I'm alive. Um, So I'm a Lutheran and like Lutherans talk a lot about this kind of like upside down quality of the gospel, how they're um, in the cross, like weakness is actually strength and what looks like strength is actually weakness. And we're seeing this a lot right now in our country um, where there's so much discussion of um, what's, what's strong is. And we have a president who makes, makes fun of weak people, people who he sees as weak but the gospel is reverses everything. Right. So that kind of strength we know is actually weakness. (laughs) Um, But I think the same reversal takes place when we're kind of called into uncertain places where you feel like, Oh, I can't go there. Like I'm going to die. Like that's death. (laughs) You know, like I can't start a garden church. Like that would kill me. (laughs) Like I won't be okay. (laughs) But actually like that's the place of life that we're being drawn toward. And when we're, when we kind of stay in places of security and safety, it feels, that feels like life, but actually in some ways like that's death dealing. I don't know if that makes sense, but I think that's what I think about when you, when you read that passage is this kind of sense of, um, so often we want to protect ourselves from the scary or broken things that are happening in the world, but actually you meet God when you like wade out into them and like move toward them. Yeah. That feels true to me. Mm. It's true to me. It's not and fun. It's <laughs> not fun. It's, and it's, and it, yeah. it's not comfortable. It is, no. it is, in fact, it is guaranteed to be uncomfortable oh, and for yet, sure. in that is life. Well, and I think the stories that you share so beautifully and your, your generosity of your own vulnerability is such an invitation in your writing to say, okay, <laughs> you know, I mean, you don't pretend that it was comfy and Mm-mm. you deal with your own privilege, your, your own story of who you are and how you identify and engage in the world and your vulnerability around. I mean, we could have a whole other podcast about being a 
female church, single church planter and dating. I mean, Ooh. a whole other conversation we could have, <laughs> um, which we won't have here. But, <laughs> but your invitation to seeing the vulnerability as, it's not even seeing it, it's, it's living the strength of that vulnerability. It's naming how those places of brokenness and weakness are where God is bringing the possibility of freedom and abundance and life. Mm-hmm. That is an invitation to all of us to, to see that in our own lives and our own communities. And so I am really grateful to you for, for putting these words on paper and sharing them with us and giving that, that roadmap an example of here's one person's story of how mm-hmm. to, to walk in the world. Thank you. Hearing that read, first and foremost, let me say, your prose is gorgeous. And so for anyone who enjoys good writing, um, this is, it comes highly recommended just, just, to, just to read your words and how you put them together. But I find that it lands, this is a book for this moment, not necessarily a pandemic moment, though I think the pandemic has, has exposed some things. I mean, and, and in that way, it is an apocalyptic moment if we use that in terms of a revealing yes Um, and i think this idea of bunker and life and all that kind of stuff like as someone who still serves in a large steeple church as i think you described it earlier um the idea of bunkering is death and you know this like we're trying to protect the life we have well that's actually a path to death and i think yes and and i think what you what you are what you and anna your book as well um suggests is that this riskiness of going out and trying it like doesn't always fail like it's Mm -hmm. there there are actually stories where we can say you know what we saw life happen over here whether it emerged out of a dinner church or out of a um or out of an abandoned lot in san pedro you know wherever um and even when it looked like failure here's what we learned and here's how we here's how we discovered life and so Mm -hmm. i continue to read your book as this prophetic call to give it a shot because Mm -hmm. we really don't have any other options at this point um you know, we, we, we can get out of the bunkers and in doing so find life doesn't mean it's easy. Um, and I think all three of us could have a bull session about how difficult planting new churches can be. Um, but that's what I, I really hear this prophetic call in your words to give it a shot, whether it's a brand new church or established churches. Um, you just gorgeously invite us out of our walls. And I think it's, I think it's beautifully done. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's so nice to hear. <laughs> and so as we as we come closer to the end of our conversation, I want to be mindful of your time. Um, as we are looking back at the work you've done, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about the work that you're currently doing. And you'll forgive the farmer in me for wanting to ask about um, about this farm to stoop program that you've got going on. Yeah. So um, you have not exhausted your creativity and you've not exhausted your um, willingness to, to try certain things. And so... Um, so I wonder if you might share a little bit um, about this program that you've recently just announced to the world um, about how you are supporting at least one local farmer, maybe maybe it's more, um, but trying to support um, those who practice agriculture and also make sure that your neighbors are fed. And so this Farm to Stoop program, we'd love to hear a little bit about what you're doing and if there are ways that our listeners can participate in some way. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so this is, oh, it's so exciting. Um, just after COVID hit, a friend of mine, Um, And by the way, this is a hugely collaborative project. It's definitely not mine by any stretch of the imagination. But um, a friend of mine was saying, 
you know, I really miss having a staff right now during COVID, like being part of a staff. Like I feel really alone in my smaller church and I don't know what to do. <laughs> and so we started getting together on a twice weekly Zoom call actually to check in with like a small group of clergy, all of whom were kind of in, you know, kind of like solo, smaller church planty type calls. Um, and we started off just by like sharing what we were doing for worship, you know, just kind of commiserating and being connected. And then that kind of naturally moved into organizing work as we kind of started sharing needs and things. Um, so we did a couple of different projects, getting food to neighbors and we're figuring out like who needs food, how we can distribute it. Um, and then someone brought up the fact that farms had been really hard hit, um, because they have no more restaurant orders coming in right now. And one of my congregants works at a farm called Crooked Fence Farm that's just outside Baltimore. And she had gotten in touch to say like, hey, we have a donor who's giving some CSA shares um, to help support the farm and to try and get them to someone who's hungry. And, I, and she was like, do you know who we could give them to? And so I was like, oh yeah, I have some ideas. And also like, what about, like, would you all be able to provide a lot of food for us to like distribute to people on a weekly basis and we would pay you for it? And she was like, oh, <laughs> like, that's <laughs> a greater scale than I was imagining. So I got in touch with a farmer, Sarah at Crooked Fence is really wonderful. And um, they have a lot of experience working with um, uh, food insecure populations and have been doing that work in DC for some time. So they were like, had the right kind of cultural mindset in terms of um, getting food to people who are hungry. And um, we are going to start on May 15th receiving um, veggies from her farm, which volunteers will pack safely with COVID safe methods. And then those will be distributed to three different neighborhoods in Baltimore. Um, yeah, in, in Baltimore City, which is really exciting to people that we know need it. So we're, we're aiming to do 150 bags a week. And um, $6,000 will buy 150 bags for two weeks, which I think is a pretty good deal. Yeah. Um, $20 a bag that will feed one family for a week. So we have a GoFundMe going and it's, I think we're almost at the halfway mark. We launched yesterday. <laughs> so I've been pretty overwhelmed been by, by the support, which is great. Like we're, we've raised like almost $3,000 in a day, which is wonderful. Um, so you can certainly support that. And if you're in the Baltimore area and you're under 60 and non-immunocompromised, you could even volunteer if you wanted to. Um, so yeah, we'll put all those links in the, in the notes for the podcast, I guess. Absolutely. Let me add let me help out here. Baltimore people, do not let us down. <laughs> go ahead, yeah. yeah. And all pod listeners, go and give. <laughs> totally. <laughs> have some extra come to give. Um, this is a great way to, to share and to help get more people fed. Yeah. But I can I just say something about that? Because this yeah. is the Food and Faith podcast. Um, it's been really amazing to work with Sarah the Farmer because suddenly food becomes something that doesn't just appear in grocery stores. You know, like when I'm talking with her about what she's going to have and when it's clear, like, well, this needs six weeks notice to, to plant and that these fields are ready and these fields are not. And I'll preach this. Yeah. It's just so <laughs> tangible and real. And like, it's been a really wonderful experience to reconnect with the ways in which food comes out of the earth. Um, so yeah, that's, it's been fascinating. And also we're also working with the Maryland food bank and in that case, like food suddenly appears like in your driveway <laughs> and there's like a lot of it. So it's just been fascinating to kind of um, interact with food in these different ways and like how to get it to people. And um, yeah, what yeah. people cook, what they like. Um, yeah. How that's all connected to like this area around us. It's very cool. Well, we'll just have to have you back on in a couple months and 
hear yeah. more specifically about that program. Um, how it goes. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Oh, it's interesting. I feel like this time where suddenly I don't, I don't just stop by the grocery store on my way home from work has, you know, I thought I already kind of paid attention to like seasonality and we have a CSA and, but it's completely reoriented all over again. And mm-hmm. like, I'm kind of sick of parsnips right now, but that's what keeps coming in the CSA. And so it's like, find new recipes for parsnips and, um, and to not be able to just, you know, easily supplement has changed my, you know, comfortable middle-class eating habits and then to take it a whole nother layer and, and know what's happening on the farms, where are people hungry in our cities, um, to get in this, we have an opportunity of this unveiling that we're seeing things in a new way and how can we individually and collectively be changed by that? Absolutely. There's huge opportunity. Uh, and also huge tragedy. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So on that note of tragedy, <laughs> we like Sorry, to guys. <laughs> Oops. We like to end our um, podcast by asking what brings you hope. And truly on that note of ha- tragedy, this is not the kind of hope that is blind to the brokenness in the world, but what are the things that are showing you that there are... God is still at work in the world and people are at work in the world. And what brings you hope to continue to show up? I have so much hope right now um, because I've been seeing ways in which God is working in spite of everything that is happening that is truly devastating and tragic. Um, in this particular moment with COVID-19. Um, and I think there's, there's moments sometimes when you see God doing something that you never could have done yourself and people never could have done. And you just think like, oh, wow, that's magic. <laughs> and I think one of them actually has been working with this, this group of colleagues and friends on the Farm to Stoop project um, because we never intended to like start a project or feed the city. Like we just came together because we needed to kind of love each other and support each other. And, um, I do believe that like the Holy spirit kind of started stirring things up and we kind of looked around and said like, Oh my gosh, we have all these different skill sets in our group and we have all these different connections in our group, um, and all these relationships. Um, one of them was, um, my colleague, David has a retired couple in his church who own a truck and they, um, are retired right now and we're not probably planning on staying home for <laughs> all of the spring and summer. And so they're putting all of their energy into kitting out their truck and their trailer with shelves so that they can fill it with groceries to deliver. And <laughs> it's so amazing. So they've been rolling up with the windows closed in their truck because they can't be exposed because they're over 60. And other people like fill up their truck and the trailer with all of these groceries and then they drive to Baltimore and from David's church and everybody unloads the truck and they sit there with their windows still closed <laughs> and they drive home and it's, it's the most beautiful thing. And, um, you know, I don't know them. We've never met. I've never seen them. And yet we're connected in this project to bring food to people and their sense of creativity and their resources have, have helped this project happen. And there's like so many little pieces with like everyone bringing their little gift and their little piece. Um, and I really do think that that's, um, God's kind of 
sacred design in the world at work. Mm. That's beautiful. I just love that image of them in their truck and just, oh, everyone has a part to give. It's yeah. that. Everybody does. Everybody I know. Does. And it feels weird right now because we're all wearing masks and we can't see each other. But, um, you know, underneath that, there's like so much beauty and we're still, we're still like even more strongly connected. So there's a strange doubleness in this moment, I think. Yeah. Oh, that's really well stated. <laughs> <That is laughs> yeah. Strange. yeah, it is. It is for sure. Yeah. Um, and so want to want to bring our interview to a close first of all by saying thank you um, so much for making some time and thank you for your words and for bringing those words into the world. Um, and so want to invite you to just share for a second about your book. Um, we'll continue to do pitches, but the best pitch is always going to come from you just because it, you know, it's your words and your passion. Um, and then, you know, how, how folks can follow you, um, you know, how folks can be in touch with your work. Um, and so if, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about the book, where they can get it and how we can stay in touch with you. My book is called For All Who Hunger, Searching for Communion in a Shattered World. And um, it's out on May 12th. You can pick it up anywhere that books are sold. But I would particularly invite you to order it through a, a local independent bookstore that you love um, or to go to bookshop.org where you can purchase it and support independent bookstores that way. Um, you can find me on Facebook, Emily M.D. Scott, or on Twitter, where I very rarely say anything, uh, at, the, at um, Broken Bread. And I'm also on Instagram at Broken Bread. But when she does say things on Twitter, they're lovely and brilliant. So <laughs> it's, it's worth following you there, too. <laughs> my, my Twitter profile is very sporadic. It's like, one month <laughs> it's like Anna's book and then like a month later it's like here's a video of a cat <laughs> and, then, and then I'm like justice <laughs> and then that's it <laughs> and then amen <laughs> yeah amen <laughs> I do not like Twitter but I do my best <laughs> well we are grateful for your presence wherever it is and we Sam and I both highly endorse this book for all who hunger searching for communion in a shattered world by Emily M.D. Scott Thank you for being with us, and we look forward to having you back on the podcast in a few months and hearing more about how everything's evolving with the good work you're doing. Yay, I would love that. Thanks, y'all. I had such a good time. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest University School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, Garden Church, and The Keep and Till. And the music is by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.